Thank you for listening to a message from the Bowden Church of Christ. For more information, visit www.bowdenchurchofchrist.com. That's www.bowdenchurchofchrist.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Bowden Church of Christ. We pray that this message is a blessing to you and helps you to serve God and find satisfaction in Him alone. And now, our speaker. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Take your Bibles and open up to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to conclude our series of lessons studying through the book of Philippians this morning for uh, a number of reasons. Uh, First of all, we're going to conclude because we've kind of come to the end of what we decided to talk about out of this book. That is that Paul tells us that we should keep joy in our mind. And so we're going to talk tonight, uh, this morning, for the last time, about the joy that Paul writes about in the book of Philippians. Also, because Morgan and I are going to be gone for two weeks. So, uh, this will be the last of that series of lessons. We do ask that you pray for us while we travel, um, especially with all that's going on as far as sickness in our world right now and uh, all of that. So, we pray that you'll, you'll pray for us while we uh, travel across the country uh, and into a, another country. We would greatly appreciate that. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 12 through 16. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. There are some things in life that are just not worth it. Now, there are some things in life that are worth the pain and the problems of doing them. Morgan and I, when we first got married, you know, we, we moved to Lineville, and Lineville is it's kind of like Bowden, but it's a little bit more out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, there's not much around. It's a town in the sticks. And uh, one of the things as a young man that I just saw everywhere was people's backyard gardens. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to plant my own garden. And so Morgan and I did that, and, and we did that every year we lived there, and I've done that some here. Um, something I've always enjoyed. One year, we took a lot of stuff that we grew, Um, and some stuff that was given to us, and we made a bunch of batches of salsa. Now, uh, that's kind of a more involved process than I first initially realized it was going to be. And at the end of it, we had made all these jars of salsa that all tasted different, and they were all just really delicious. And I kind of asked myself that question, you know, was this worth the trouble? And the answer was yes. I mean, it was delicious. It was really great. It was worth the trouble. I know I can go buy a jar from Walmart for a dollar, but it just tasted so much better. It was worth it. Another instance where something like this happened, uh, I saw a video one time when I was just scrolling through Facebook of this older gentleman wearing Liberty overalls in his kitchen, and he made homemade chicken and dumplings. And I thought, you know what? I want to do that. That looks delicious. He included the recipe and everything. So I went home and we made the homemade uh, chicken stock and we made the homemade dumplings and we put them in there and we cooked them and we got to the end and we ate that bowl of chicken and dumplings. I thought, was this worth the trouble? No, it tastes just about the same as any other chicken dumplings I've ever had. It really wasn't worth the trouble to go through all of that to get the end product. Some things in life are worth the trouble. Other things in life are not worth the trouble. This morning, what we're going to study out of Philippians chapter 2, we're going to ask the question, 
is the Christian life actually worth the trouble? All the things that we endure, the situations we're put in, and the things God wants of us, is that all worth the trouble? I think that's kind of what Paul gets at here in this passage. Before we get into that, though, I do want to remind you of the two things we have looked at so far in the book of Philippians. Philippians is a book that tells us all about how we should be the most joyful people in the world. That's kind of been the premise of this whole study. Christians should be the people that are the most joyful in the world. And that should be evident to all kinds of people. That's what Paul addresses here in the book of Philippians, that we should have joy in different areas of life. And so Paul writes the book of for, uh, Philippians to tell us that. So the premise that we've studied, we got from Isaiah 43 and verse 7, that God created us for His glory. And so in order for you and I, I believe the book of Philippians is telling us that in order for God to be most glorified in us, we are to be most satisfied in Him. He's the one that I look to for my satisfaction, for fulfillment. He's the one in whom I measure everything that goes on in my life, not the world. So for God to be most glorified in me, I must first be most satisfied in Him. And so we've been studying the book of Philippians, which is filled with this idea that Christians should be saturated with joy. And Paul talks about that. The first thing that we studied in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, Paul said, I find joy in life. I'm satisfied in life, no matter the circumstances that come my way. Now remember, Paul was in prison. And all those things we talked about, he said... It doesn't matter because Christ is exalted and, and in that I find the most satisfaction. So it doesn't matter what happens to me. It doesn't matter where I end up. What matters is that I am satisfied in God. And all those circumstances aren't burdens, they become blessings. And so Paul talks about that. Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 through 18. Last Sunday we talked about how Paul says we should find joy in selflessness. That we looked at the example of Jesus. Jesus gave up what was best for him in order to do what was best for us. And so Paul says all of us as Christians should have the same attitude. I should be willing to do what's best for others rather than always do what's best for me. And in that, Paul said, I can rejoice. I find joy in that. I find satisfaction in doing what's best for others. Paul is going to continue to play off that very thing that he said that we studied last Sunday because we're going to pick up right where we left off. We studied Philippians 2, 1 through 11 last week. Let's pick up in Philippians 2 and verse 12. I want you to keep all the things we talked about last week in your mind about Jesus leaving the equality with God in order to be a bondservant that died on our behalf and how Paul wanted them to be obedient because of that. Because Jesus was obedient, we can be obedient. So let's read Philippians 2, 12 through 16. And uh, we'll, as we've been doing, look at each one of these verses, uh, pull a few things out of each one, offer some points of application at the end, and the lesson will be yours. Philippians 2 and verse 12. Remember, Paul has just said that if we submit to Jesus at the end of time, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, because God has given him that name that is above all names. Okay? Verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, 
children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud. Some translations say I may rejoice that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 through 16. Now remember what he just said in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. He says, I want you to look out not for your own interest, but also the interest of others. Consider Jesus, who is the example. He left what was best for him, came to earth to do what was best for us. And because of that, we should follow his example of obedience. Submitting my life to God, partly, Paul says is putting others before myself. And so when you look at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, that very first verse that we're going to study this morning, you have at the very beginning of it the word therefore. Let's never forget that every word in the Bible is there for a reason. God put those words there for reasons. And when we read the word therefore, it should bring into mind everything Paul has just said. I take everything from chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and it's a continuation of that discussion. He says, all of this, now therefore, this is what you should do. Now what does Paul bring out? As he talks about us being obedient as Christians, he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and trembling. One of the first things that Paul brings out here in verse 12, he says that he is impressed with those Christians because they were obedient when he was around. But he says, so much more so also in my absence you have been obedient. You know, I believe that sometimes there are events in life where it is very easy for you and I to be obedient to God. There are certain situations that we could find ourselves in where I find it easy to follow the Lord. For teenagers, oftentimes we talk about this in terms of summer camp. They go to some Christian camp, Inagehi, Backwoods, Maywood, wherever you grew up going, any other camp around in the southeast. You go to camp and it becomes very easy to be obedient to God. You're surrounded by people that influence you to be obedient. But Paul doesn't just say he's impressed because they were obedient when he was there. He says, I'm much more impressed that you have also been obedient in my absence. It's good for you and I to be motivated to be obedient by other people, but we should never live a hypocritical life where my motivation to obedience ceases when my motivation walks away. That is, when I'm not around the people that motivate me to follow the Lord. It should be a self-motivation to be obedient to Christ. And Paul says he is impressed with them because they have been obedient. But he wants them to continue being obedient because he says to them in verse 12, I want you to, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, I want you to work out your own salvation. A lot of times when we read this verse, we oftentimes will take it to make the argument that, oh, see here in Philippians 2 and verse 12, Paul says that we all have the opportunity and the responsibility to work out our own salvation. That is, there is a human side to salvation. And I would agree with that. There are a lot of people in the world that say that there's no human side to salvation. There's no works that you must do. There's no human effort that goes into salvation. But there is. 
I think anytime we look in the Bible, we notice that. Uh, Donnie, when he was teaching the class uh, a couple of weeks ago, brought out the story of Israel when they were in the camp and God provided uh, the quail for them and he caused it to hover across the ground, but they still had to walk out a mile to go get it. There's always a requirement that God expects man to do something. But I don't think that here in Philippians 2 and verse 12, it's telling us about our initial salvation that we have to work it out. Now, let me explain to you why I believe that in Philippians 2 and verse 12. Take your Bibles for just a moment, and I want to show you two ways that the idea of salvation is used in the Bible. The first one, I want you to take your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. There's two ways that the idea of salvation is brought out in God's Word. The first we see, for instance, in Romans chapter 8, it does refer to me initially being saved. You find the word salvation, it, it talks about us being saved from our sins, to be brought back, to be bought back, to be redeemed. And in Romans chapter 8 and verse 24, that's exactly what it's talking about. As Paul talks about a hope that is a real biblical hope, not a superficial hope, he says, for in this hope you were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for one for who hopes for what he sees? Romans chapter 8 and verse 24 talks about salvation as something that has happened. He says, for this hope you were saved. That's a moment in time. There is a moment in time in which every single one of us are saved. And that's what Romans 8 talks about. It even talks about it in Ephesians 2 and verse 5 and Ephesians 2 and verse 8. You're probably most familiar with Ephesians 2 and verse 8. Where Paul says, for by grace you have been saved by faith. Through faith. That is, I have been saved. It's, a, it's an initial event. It's when salvation takes place. But that's not the only way salvation is talked about. Because if you take your Bibles, for instance, and go to Romans 13, salvation, the Word, talks more than just me initially being saved. It talks about the process of me overall being saved in my entrance to heaven. Romans chapter 13 and verse 11, Paul says this, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Notice, for salvation is nearer. It's nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, how could salvation be nearer to me than when I first became a Christian? Well, it's because I'm working to an ultimate salvation of being in heaven with God. And that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 15 says. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. In the future, he will be saved. Even though he's doing the works of a Christian, he will be saved, and only as through fire. And so salvation is talked about in two different ways in the Bible. Now, I believe in Philippians 2 and verse 12, Paul's talking about the second instance. Because he's writing to believers. They've already become Christians. He's already instructing them about the Christian life. What does he mean when he says we need to work out our salvation? A working out of my salvation is much more than me just initially saying, okay, what's the plan of salvation? Have I believed or have I heard? Have I believed? Have I repented? Have I confessed? Have I been baptized? Working out my salvation is much more than that. Working out my salvation is a day by day walking the way that Christ walked. That's what John says in 1 John 2 and verse 6. He says we should walk as he walked. It's an everyday life of obedience to God. And so Paul is telling these Christians that they need to continue obeying Jesus. He's telling them that they need to continue being faithful. They need to work out their salvation. Hear me this morning. 
we're going to kind of build up to our conclusion of our application and hopefully it'll all kind of fit together like a puzzle. Everyone in this room that's been saved should be working out your salvation right now. You should be putting in the effort to make sure that you have obeyed Jesus and that you're continuing to obey Jesus. That is a responsibility of every Christian to work out our salvation. You, and, and you may be like the Christians in this time. You may have a reaction like this. Sometimes, you know, uh, I, I hear people say about preachers sometimes, well, that preacher, all, all he ever preaches is first principles. Never preaches anything more than that. All I ever hear is him talking about obedience and salvation and faith and all these things. It never gets much deeper than that. But remember what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said, it's needful for me to remind you of these things. It's good for you to be reminded that every day as a Christian, you should be working out your salvation. You should be studying God's word more. You should be evaluating your life more every single day. And so Paul says, in light of Jesus, he, he gave up equality with God to come sacrifice himself for you. He says, I want you to keep working out your salvation. Now, he says with fear and trembling, and we could probably do a whole sermon on the idea of fear and trembling in the Bible. But all that means is it's a reverent attitude towards God. I look to God as being the one is who, who is in higher authority than me. So I respond to him not in a, a, a shuddering fear where I hide in the closet. It's a, it's a respectful fear. I work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Let's move on to the next verse. All right, verse 13. This is hopefully going to build into uh, what will all make sense to uh, when we talk about Christian life being worth it at the end. Chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, first of all, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Constantly be working out whether or not you're saved, you're being obedient to Jesus. Work that out on a daily basis. Then he says... For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Many people will come to Philippians 2, 12 and 13 and will oftentimes say this. Yes, I need to be working out my, my salvation with fear and trembling, but actually verse 13 says that God's the one who does the work. And so uh, actually it's not really my work at all. It's God's work, working it out in me. And in some degree, I say, yes, God works things out for us. He helps us out. But when you look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, and you find the word work, verse 12 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out on your own. Then verse 13 says, it is God who works in you. And he, he, he causes you to will and to work. Those are two completely different words. You see, the first one is to work or to labor. It's like me doing a task. You know, uh, Morgan loves to give me to-do lists at the house. I function really well on honey-do lists. Like, I know a lot of men don't like honey-do lists. I really thrive in a honey-do list. I mean, if I have things to check off a list, because if she tells me everything without writing it down, I forget before I get halfway done through number one. And then I get distracted doing something I needed to do, right? Maybe some of you are like me and you do that. I thrive really well on a, on a to-do list, a, a structure of how to work something out. That's what that first word means. It's a structure. I am working something out step by step. That is, he says, work out your salvation. However, in verse 13, it's not the word work as in structure or labor. It's the word work, and it's where we get our English word energy. In other words, what Paul is saying is not that God does the work of working out your salvation for you. 
What he's saying is that God gives us the ability to work out our salvation. He gives us the energy to work it out. Now, what does this practically mean for you and I? Well, it means for us that I can work hard all day long. You and I can work hard all day long. But unless God is giving the energy to make my work efficient, it does nothing. Let me prove this to you in another passage we often quote. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase, right? We understand it in evangelism. I can try to save somebody all day long, but it's not going to work until God gives me the energy, the efficiency to do it. That's the same thing in my Christian life. I can work and labor and, and roll my wheels all day long. But until God puts the efficiency in it, it doesn't become work. And so Paul says, I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling and trust that God is going to make that work efficient. Verse 14. Verse 14. Probably one of the more practical verses in this entire study. Philippians 2 and verse 14. Very short, easy one to memorize. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, we may be asking the question, Paul has been talking about Christians being unified, them being of the same mind, chapter 1. He talks about them working together, chapter 1. He talks about them caring and putting others first, chapter 2. Why in the world... How does he get to this idea of them doing all things without grumbling or disputing? I believe we get to the reason of the whole issue in verse 14. Why is it that Paul told them they needed to be unified? Why is it that Paul told them that they needed to consider others more important than themselves? The reason, they were a bunch of complainers. They were always grumbling and complaining. Now, we should be very familiar with this because this is exactly what happened in Old Testament Israel all the way from when they came out of Egypt, all throughout that story. Exodus 16, Exodus 17, Numbers 11, Numbers 14. The people of Israel were always grumbling or complaining. Now, they always grumbled or complained against Moses, and Moses said, when you complain against me, you're actually complaining against God. And so they were punished for that many times. But in Philippians chapter 2, we see the people of Philippi doing the same thing. They were grumbling or complaining. But they weren't grumbling or complaining against Moses. Moses was long dead. They weren't grumbling or complaining against God. Philippians chapter 2 tells me they were grumbling and complaining against each other. Because Paul's always telling them, you need to be on the same page. You need to strive side by side, chapter 1 and verse 27. You need to make sure you consider others better than yourself. Now, if you're going to do that, live your life without grumbling or complaining. Uh, I think we probably all know what grumbling means. If I could pronounce uh, the Hebrew word that uh, was used in the Old Testament for grumbling and then uh, the Greek word, if you say them out loud, they all just kind of sound like grumbling. You ever heard somebody grumble? You know, that's kind of what those words sounded like. And that's what it was. They were just, they were complaining. They were grumbling. They were upset. But the word disputing doesn't just mean they were arguing. It means they were questioning one another. Always questioning. I think we all probably know someone who brings every single possible thing into question all the time. Their doubt and their question, I believe, was against the will of God concerning their life. Philippians chapter 1 tells us they were suffering. 
Philippians chapter 2 tells us they were not considering others better than themselves. And in the context of this entire book, they were suffering in their relationship to one another. The reason that they couldn't make inroads into finding joy in life is because they were always using the microscope on each other. They were always grumbling about each other, picking out the faults in each other, always grumbling and disputing. And so Paul tells them, do all things, do nothing rather, do nothing with grumbling and disputing. Verse 15. He says, here's the result. If you live your life by not grumbling or disputing, do all things without grumbling or disputing, he says, you will be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul tells them that if they would put away their grumbling and questioning, they would become great examples to the pagan culture that was around them. It would eliminate the problem. They would become blameless and innocent. We look at children and say that they're blameless and innocent. These Christians, if they would put this away, would become blameless and innocent. They would eliminate their problematic influence and would be a light to the world around them. Now, I, I think that we don't really need to go into the discussion of light because we know it's all throughout the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, uh, you know, you're a city set on a hill. You're like this light and uh, you can't just hide it under a basket. You can't hide the city set on a hill. It shines so that everybody can see it. The Christian life is like a light. We sing with our little kids. This little Christian light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, right? Light is important. Even back in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. When it talks about the resurrection age in Daniel chapter 12, he's talking about those who through righteousness are lights to other people. As a Christian, if I live what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 2, if I live out my life without grumbling, disputing, always having something to say, if I'm working out my salvation every day, if I'm doing these things, he says, you will be a light to a crooked and twisted generation. I don't think that you have to watch very much television to know that we live in a, crook, a crooked and twisted generation. People are twisted and crooked. And this world seems to be full of them, right? Just the other day, Morgan and I had to call the bank because somebody stole my card and used it in San Francisco for a $5 Uber. I mean, a $5 Uber. Why would you go through the hassle of stealing someone's card for a $5 Uber, right? But we live in a crooked generation. People are, un, they're not honest. They steal. They lie. They do all these terrible things. And Paul says, if you live your life the way that we're looking at, the way I'm asking you to, in light of Jesus, you will be a light to this generation that's twisted and crooked. You'll be a great example to them. I saw something the other day uh, on Facebook that I thought was interesting that I'll share with you. And it said this. It said that we should all strive to be the reason someone believes there are still good people in the world. You should strive to be the reason that some people believe there are still good people in the world. I know you've all been through it. 
your wallet gets left at the grocery store or uh, you accidentally drop something out of your car or you leave your purse at some kind of store you go to or whatever and eventually you find out that it's been turned in. Now, that's not always the case, but we experienced this, right? Uh, I've lost my wallet before and it's been turned in with everything still in it. And that was in the middle of Montgomery, which is, I, I mean, I don't believe miracles still exist, but if, that, if they did, that would be the closest one, right? In the middle of Montgomery, my wallet was turned back in with everything still in it. There are still good people in this world. Paul says if you live your life based on the example of Jesus, you will be a light to the world around you, to a crooked and perverse generation. Uh, the last, verse 16, and then we're going to make our application very quickly. Verse 16, he says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud or rejoice that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul tells these Christians that part of their influence would be attributed to them holding fast to the word of life. And it's the apostle John in 1 John that tells us that the word of life is Jesus. And so Jesus is someone that I should hold fast too. Now, of course, when I hold fast to Jesus, I also hold fast to His commandments. So that would include His Word as well. And so I need to hold fast to those things. Now, it's interesting that throughout the Bible, I actually find a lot of things that, that the Bible says I should or I can hold fast to. For instance, in uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave, cling to, or hold fast his wife, depending on your translation. So as spouses, we hold fast to our our significant other. Deuteronomy 13 tells me in verse 4 that I should hold fast to God and His precepts. In uh, Job chapter 2 and verse 9, the rhetorical question is asked, do you hold fast to your integrity? How many of us hold fast to our integrity? Uh, Psalm 64 and verse 5, David says that evil men hold fast to their evil intentions. Hold fast to them. Hosea 12, hold fast to love and justice. And then Romans 12 and verse 9, uh, abhor what is evil, cling or hold fast to that which is good. So, so Paul, Peter, uh, Paul, Paul says here in Philippians chapter 2, there's too many men with uh, names that start with a P all right, in the Bible. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that we need to hold fast to Jesus, the word of life and his commandments. Hold fast to that. And here comes our conclusion. If I do that, he says, I find the joy that we've all been looking for in this passage. Where's the joy in this passage? Because every, every lesson we've looked at, we found Paul's joy. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, he rejoiced regardless of what happened, his circumstances. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, he rejoiced in living a selfless life, putting others before himself. So what is it that Paul is saying he finds joy in? He says as a result of everything we've just talked about, and we're about to review it all, Everything that he just talked about, he says, I am proud. I find joy knowing that I have not run or labored in vain. How in the world are you supposed to know that getting up on a Sunday morning, wrestling your kids to get dressed, getting in the car, driving to services, sitting down in a pew for two hours and listening to someone talk about the Bible, singing, taking the Lord's Supper and giving... How are you supposed to know that any of that is worth your time? I believe Paul answers that question here in Philippians chapter 2. How do I know that any of this is actually worth my time? Well, let's look at what we've just studied. Paul says that he finds joy in the fact that this Christian life is me is about me working out my salvation. Every day I'm striving to walk like Jesus, to treat others the way He treats, He treated them, 
to follow his example. Paul says, I find joy in working out my salvation. Do you? You see, being a Christian is more than just the social aspect of a Sunday morning. Following Jesus is about every single day. And in that day, struggling and pushing towards being more like him. It's an admittance that my way of life actually isn't the best one and that I'm going to spend my life working out what he has asked me to do. And Paul said, in that I find joy. Do we? Our next verse, verse 13. Paul says that he finds joy in trusting that God makes our work effective. Listen, if the success of the kingdom of God solely and wholly depended on my human effort, the church would be in very bad shape because I can't do enough as a person to even save myself, let alone to advance the kingdom of God in the world. And so God takes that burden off our shoulders. It's not about how much you can do. It's that in what you do, God makes that work effective. It is in you. He works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. God makes our work effective. And Paul says, in that, I find joy. Do you? And next, verse 14. Paul brings us this idea in verse 14 of doing all things without grumbling or complaining. But I have to ask the question, how can I be joyful in my work for the Lord? How can I be joyful in everything that I do for God when all I see opportunities being are burdens? Every opportunity to serve God, I see it as a burden, as an inconvenience. He says, don't live the Christian life grumbling and complaining, questioning, and always upset about the things that you have to do. You know, we try to, to communicate language with our son, and I know it's a small thing, but, you know, a lot of times you may be guilty of this too, because I am. I'll say to side, like on a Wednesday night, before we come up here, like, all right, you need to get dressed, we have to go to church. Well, we've tried to start saying, we need to get dressed, we get to go to church. You know, how do we view the things that God asks us to do? Do we view them as burdens or do we view them as beautiful, glorifying opportunities? Because God is not glorified in me when I'm not satisfied in Him. And you want to know when I'm most unsatisfied in God? When I complain about everything I have to do for Him. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied. In, him. in verse 15, Paul says he can find joy in that his life may lead someone else to Christ. He said, you will shine as lights to the world. Do you find joy knowing that the way you live could bring someone to Jesus? Some of you in here, maybe a good majority of you at some point in your life, has brought someone to Christ. That should be something in which we find great joy. And then our last, he says in verse 16, that he finds joy knowing that the Christian life is worth it. That everything he, do, he has done, all the working out of his salvation, all the living without grumbling or complaining, all the life lived for Jesus versus living for himself. He says, I know I will rejoice in the day of Christ because I will know that I have not done any of that in vain. You remember the book of Ecclesiastes? The number one word in that book? Vanity. <laughs> Vanity of vanity. It's all vanity. I mean, even the mundane things Solomon ultimately says are vanity. He hates everything, it seems like. 
It's the exact opposite of his attitude in Proverbs. He hates everything in Ecclesiastes. Is life really just all vanity? It's not when it's lived for Jesus. So the question is, do you find joy in life despite your circumstances? No matter what goes on, are you finding the joy that Paul talks about in Philippians, the satisfaction in Jesus? Do you find satisfaction in putting others before yourself, in giving other people opportunity before yourself, of, of considering their interests? Also, he even says as being more important than your own interests. Not just forgetting yourself, but, but not always just being all about yourself. And then the last, do you find joy in knowing that in the midst of this struggle of working out our salvation, of keeping the right attitude as a Christian, of knowing that God gives the effort and the efficiency in my work, do you find joy in knowing that the end of life, the Christian life, will be always worth it? That nothing you do will be done in vain? If you need to change your attitude towards that way of life this morning by obeying the gospel, repenting of sin, and coming to the Lord, please do so as we stand and sing.